Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. Hey there, welcome back, Bible Center family. It's so great to have you joining us on TV or online. Uh, Thank you so much for coming to church today. I'm Matt, I'm the lead pastor. If we haven't yet had the chance to meet, I look forward to meeting you soon next time our paths cross. I like to say here at Bible Center, we're a family expecting guests. And so if you're a guest, again, uh, we're so glad that you're here. Today we continue our eight-week series entitled, Are You Certain?, whereas we study through the book of 1 John. And so if you're taking notes, I'd like to say that the book of 1 John could be summarized with this one word, the word assurance. Assurance. One of John's primary goals is to give genuine believers that the assurance that all of our sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. That God the Father completely accepts and approves of us through the merits of Jesus and that we really are going to be with Jesus when we die. The, gospel, or the, the epistle of 1 John is all about giving us assurance of salvation, that our salvation is eternal. It is unable to be lost. We see this in 1 John 5, 13, kind of the summary verse for the entire book. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. It's important to note right away that assurance of salvation must not be confused with salvation itself. A person can be saved in Christ without having assurance of salvation, and equally, one can have false or incorrect assurance of salvation without truly being saved. And so God not only wants you to have assurance, but God wants you to have assurance of the real thing. And that's my desire today as well. That's my burden as well. I want you to be assured uh, that you have genuinely followed Jesus and that the life of God is now within you. In this book, the little book of 1 John, the Spirit makes an ironclad case for how you can know that you know that you know that you are a genuine Jesus follower. Now, in my time as being a pastor, I have heard uh, around the country and even around here in our area, I have heard a number of different ways that people have suggested that you can have assurance of salvation. For instance, I've heard one person tell another person to make sure that they prayed the right words when they asked Jesus to be the Lord of their life. Well, John says nothing about making sure we pray the right words. I've heard folks talk about making sure you have the religious experience of walking down an aisle or uh, having a certain experience in a worship service. Well, the Bible says nothing in 1 John about any of those. Actually, the assurance of salvation is based on clear objective evidence and the clear promises of God. What we're looking at in this series is a lot like a puzzle. Really, every message in this series fits together like an eight-piece puzzle, giving us eight different angles or ways that we can be sure of our salvation. 
Now, talking about puzzles, this week I googled the world's largest puzzle. This at one time was the world's largest puzzle. We call this the Disney puzzle. It's about 140 square feet. And this particular puzzle shows 10 different images uh, from some of Disney's most popular films. It has 40,320 pieces and takes about 600 hours to complete. But that is no longer the largest puzzle in the world. This, evidently, is now the largest puzzle in the world. Kodak, of all people, came out with a puzzle that's 51,300 pieces. It has pictures of the Great Wall of China, the Statue of Liberty, the Taj Mahal, and a number of other places around the world. And you can order this on Amazon today for $569.99. That's all for a puzzle. But thankfully, our puzzle in 1 John, again, only has eight pieces. So far in this series, we've examined two pieces of the puzzle last weekend and the weekend before that. We looked two weekends ago about how a relationship with Jesus gives us assurance of our salvation. Last week, Pastor Mike talked about the importance of feeling conviction of sin and repenting and confessing that sin to the Lord. The fact that we feel conviction of sin, that we don't want to sin, that we don't like it when we sin, is actually evidence that we are Christian. We're going to cover chapter 2, verses 3 through 11 on Mother's Day, so we're going to skip over to verse 12 today. If you haven't yet downloaded the Bible Center app, I want to encourage you to do that. All the notes, uh, much of what I'm going to say today and even a lot that I'm not going to have time to say can be found on the app so you can follow along there in the sermon notes section. Today's message is entitled Certain Desires and it's the third piece of our eight-piece series or our eight-piece puzzle. We're going to look at how God gives new desires to those who are truly His. If you have these desires today, as I talk about the new desires, if your soul resonates with what I say, be encouraged. Let the Spirit of God give you assurance that you are the child of God. If what I say today doesn't resonate with you, if you don't really have the desires that we're talking about today, my prayer is not that you'll just be encouraged, uh, but that you'll turn to Christ, that you'll believe the gospel, and we'll talk about that today. I'm going to give you one thing to believe and two things to do. This message is very simple, one thing to believe and two things to do. Let's look at our text, 1 John 2, verse 12. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever." 
When it comes to the assurance of your salvation, here's the one big idea that I want you to believe. Here's what I want you to know in your soul today. It's simply this. Children of God desire the things of God. Children of God desire the things of God. Tomorrow, if somebody asks, what was the message about? You could take the whole message, all six verses that we're going to talk about, and sum it up into these words, children of God desire the things of God. Of God. We could also say it this way genuine children of God desire the things of God. True children of God desire the things of God. Children of God love the things of God. If you love the things of God, you are likely a child of God. Genuine Christians love God more than anything in this world. Genuine Christians desire the things of God more than the things of this world. You can have assurance of salvation if you desire to follow Jesus more than anything else. Our desires reveal our direction. Our ultimate desires reveal our ultimate destination. Here's a question for you as we get rolling. Does this mean that genuine Christians will never experience temptation? Does it mean that Christians are exempt from temptation? Of course, the answer is no, no way. Uh, Christians every day, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, according to Galatians chapter 5, Christians every day face the same temptations, and sometimes exponentially so, than someone who's not a believer. We are going to face temptation in this life. Unfortunately, not only are we going to be tempted, but even we as Christians can succumb to temptation. We can give in to those temptations. And according to 1 John chapter 1 that we heard from Pastor Mike last week, it is a very, uh, it's a reality in our life that we are going to give in to them t- those temptations. It's not something we want to do. It's not something we often plan to do. But in our state, in our flesh, though we have God inside of us, there are times when we will make selfish choices. But what we're going to look at today is that the direction of the Christian life, the overall direction, the the overarching tone of the Christian life is not one of going down the road of the desires of the world, but it's actually following the desires of God. Genuine children of God desire the things of God. And so we have to ask, what are the things of God? He talks in this passage about the things of the world and the things of God. So what are the things of God? Let's look at verse 12 and see what these things are. John says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven. Now, if you're taking notes or if you're following along with our notes, you'll find that the word dear children was used by John and copied, or used by Jesus and copied by John at least eight times in this little letter. Jesus loved to call all believers dear children. You see him calling his disciples, his followers, dear children. And John does the same thing. You can look up all those references on your own. Literally, the word dear children could be translated born ones. Born ones. We are the born ones. According to John chapter 3, we've been born again. And so when we see throughout this book the term dear children, we can know that John is referring to all of us who are followers of Jesus. To us, he writes, your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. 
Your sins have been forgiven. All of your sins, your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins. Let me encourage you right now in this moment to think about that reality. Your sins, if you're a follower of Jesus, have been forgiven. All of them. All of them were in the future when Jesus died on the cross. So think about, don't think too much, but think about things in your life that you would never want anyone to know. Things in your life that you know, God knows. And if you've put your faith in Christ, if you've turned to Jesus, repented of your sin, you can be sure that your sins have been forgiven. Genuine Christians, when we hear that truth, something resonates in our heart. We are grateful. We are thankful for forgiveness. That's one of the signs. That's one of the desires of a genuine Christian. And then in verse 13, he says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. Now this idea of fathers and young men, John is now separating believers into two categories. Our English translators have translated them fathers and young men, but the idea here is spiritually mature and spiritually immature, spiritually experienced and spiritually inexperienced. The Bible does the same thing throughout the New Testament. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28. There is such a thing as a mature believer, and there's such a thing as an immature believer. Both are going to heaven, both have Jesus Christ. A lot of times it has to do with how long they've been believers, or in the time that they've been believers, how much they've lived under the authority of the Word of God and in authentic community with other brothers and sisters. But this idea of fathers has nothing to do with one's gender, one's age, or one's progeny. In John's day, it was a term of spiritual maturity. And so what he's saying here is that God's spiritually mature children can have assurance of salvation. Equally so, God's spiritually new or immature children can also have assurance of their salvation. Those who are inexperienced in their faith and those who are experienced in their faith. One of the signs of, gen of being a genuine believer is that you have this desire to know God. John is probably echoing what Jesus said, recorded for us back in the Gospel of John, chapter 10 and verse 14. Jesus said, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. In John 17, 1 through 3, we hear the recorded words of Jesus as he said that eternal life, the essence of eternal life, is knowing God. So all believers, young or old, can have assurance that their faith is in Jesus Christ if they have a genuine desire to know God. And then he says about specifically these complimenting the younger believers, he says that they have overcome the evil one. Genuine Christians have a deep desire to overcome the evil one. Now, who's the evil one? Of course, this is Satan himself. 
This is more than just saying no to individual temptations, although that's part of it, but it also includes being able to use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You see, Satan's primary emphasis is not on tempting individuals to sin, but on working through false religious systems to deceive the world and lead the most people to eternal damnation. And so John was complimenting this particular church, this particular group of Christians. Even the newer Christians were being trained to fight with the Word of God. This is how Jesus fought. In, we see this in Matthew chapter 4 when he was tempted in the wilderness. Three times Satan tempted him, and three times Jesus quoted Scripture. That'll be important in a few minutes later in this passage. Verse 14 says this, I write to you, dear children, we're going to see the three categories again, dear children, fathers, and young men. He's going to use that again uh, in the spirit of repetition, talking about all Christians here. And then he divides all Christians into two categories, the experienced or mature believers and the young or inexperienced or immature believers. And he says, again, they know the Father. We just saw this theme back in verse 13. Genuine believers have a desire to know the Father, and genuine believers have a desire to overcome the evil one. If those are your desires, let be encouraged. Let it resonate in your soul. Those two desires are not natural desires. John wrote this that you might have assurance that God is in your life and that you have eternal life within. But he goes on to say something I want to highlight in this passage. He, he compliments particularly, again, the younger believers. He says, you are strong. Why were they strong? Because the word of God lived in them. And that brings up another point, that genuine believers desire the strength that only comes from the word of God. We can never fight the spiritual life on our own. We can never fight the spiritual battle that we face every single day on our own. We need the word of God. Verse 15, he continues, he says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. Essentially here, with three occasions of using the word love, John is urging everyone to choose a lover. He, he's causing us to choose carefully, either choose the world or choose God the Father. And he's about to make the point that genuine Christians will choose God the Father and not choose the world. Now, when he says, don't love the world, do not love the world, what is he talking about here with this idea of world? Is he talking about planet Earth? No, I don't believe so, and Bible scholars don't believe so. We find that when God created the world in Genesis chapter 1 into Genesis chapter 2, as the story is recorded for us, God declared that his creation is good. Even though sin has broken the world, the world, planet Earth, still contains the residue of the goodness of God. And so it's, it's, he's not telling us that we shouldn't love the beach 
or we shouldn't love the mountains, or we shouldn't love sunrises or sunsets or ice cream or popcorn. But he is, he's referring to something else with the word world. So he's not talking about the planet. He's also not talking about people. He's not saying don't love the people of the world. In context, we see back in John 3.16, he uses the same word, but in context it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Who's, who's the world? Who, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Back in John 3.16, God is clearly talking about the people of the world. And so in this passage, he's not talking about the planet. He's not talking about the people. He's not giving us an excuse not to love people. What's he talking about? Well, there's a third P. He's actually talking about a philosophy, the world's philosophy. In context, the word world in 1 John 2.15 refers to a worldly philosophy or system that stands opposed to God at every turn. The ideologies of this world originate with Satan and his demons who seek to sweep up as many people as possible on their way to eternal destruction. All the verses are there in your notes to read, but, but I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 6 when he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We're not fighting people, we're not fighting policies, and we're not even fighting presidents. We are ultimately fighting against a system that is controlled by Satan himself. And according to John, genuine Christians desire we desire not to be swept up into the system of the world. Will we be tempted with sin? Yes. Will we succumb to sinful temptation at times? Yes. However, genuine Christians do not cherish the world. Easily, we could translate the word love with the word cherish. Do not cherish the world. It's the same meaning. What about those people who do cherish the world? What is their future? What is their, uh, what's their destiny if something doesn't change? Well, if anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. John is clearly saying that if someone is all about the world's philosophy, all about the world's philosophy, but they really love the world more than they love God, John says that person doesn't need assurance of his or her salvation. That person needs genuine, initial salvation. It means they're not yet a believer. So now we have to ask, what does John mean about anything that's in the world? What does he mean about not loving the world? If we were left to define this on our own, we could, get, we could make Christianity really weird. I grew up in a system and, and spent some time studying in a system that was very, very strict religiously. And unfortunately, some of the leaders in that movement were able to define the word world however they wanted to. They could define what was worldly on a whim. They could define what kind of hairstyle was worldly, what kind of clothing or, or brands were worldly, what kind of music or musical instruments were worldly. And it just gets really weird. But thankfully, God didn't leave us on our own, but he gave us verse 16. 
In verse 16, he's going to define for us what is worldly. He says, for everything in the world, or here's what's worldly, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, what is the lust of the flesh? Well, literally, it's the cravings of sinful man. It refers to our basis cravings. God created us with good appetites for sex and food and relationships. However, even our best appetites have been stained by sin and must be guarded. If not guarded, then we can slip into immorality or gluttony or drunkenness or addiction or people-pleasing. This is why Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19 defines the works of the flesh. It says the works of the flesh are these, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this, those who continually practice these things without conviction, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so genuine Christians, we, we weigh down deep. We desire not the lust of the flesh, but we desire the love for God. And then he defines the lust of the eyes, or he lists the lust of the eyes. You could also say the lust of the eyes is the desires of the eyes. This refers to our propensity to be captivated by the outward show of things without understanding their real value. We humans have a tendency to forget that everything that glitters isn't gold. Everything that glitters isn't gold. It harkens back to the time when Eve in Genesis chapter 3 saw the forbidden fruit and found it pleasing to her eyes. It reminds us of Lot's wife who looked back and died. When Achan saw the Babylonian garments and the money and hid it under his tent. When David saw Bathsheba bathing on her roof and stole her from her husband. This is why companies spend billions on commercials because they know that the, the lust of the eyes is like bait to a fish. And so God warns us of that. And then he says, be warned of the pride of life. Now this is interesting. The pride of life refers to the arrogance, the boastfulness, or the false confidence that comes in trusting in things. Literally, you could translate the word life, material possessions, the pride of material possessions. The same Greek word is used in 1 John 3, 17, when he says, if anyone has material possessions, that's the same word for life in chapter 2 in the original language, and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? It's the same idea. It's the same word. So going back to chapter 2 and verse 16, we see that John is warning us, don't have the pride of life. Don't put your confidence in the material possessions of this life, which again is so easy to do. Jesus experienced these same three temptations in the same exact order that John lists them. 
And so there are overtones of Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, even here in 1 John chapter 2. Jesus was tempted with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But thankfully, he did not cave. He didn't cave. I love what the Puritan Richard Sibbs writes, The flesh of mine is ready to betray me into the hands of the world and of the devil. Therefore, I must not allow my affections to rove. You ever felt that way? That really is a daily reality. We must not let our affections rove. And so lastly, if we were to stick a microphone in front of John and say, John, why must we not allow our affections to rove? He'll tell us in verse 17. Because the world and its desires pass away. Literally, they are passing away. It's in present tense. You could also say it this way. The world is in self-destruction mode. The world is in self-destruction mode. Cars rust and fall apart. Houses are destroyed. Beauty fades. We age. Our own bodies are moving toward death. Everything in front of us that we can touch and taste and see, it's all going to fade away. And so John is warning us, don't live for what we can just see in front of us. Don't live for the worldly philosophies and the temptation, but live for something else. You know, sometimes I've wondered what the angels think when they see us clamoring for gold. Think with me for a minute. What do the angels think when they see us clamoring for money or more specifically for gold? You know, if you think about it, they probably just wonder why we're so consumed with having more pavement. Because gold is just heaven's pavement, according to the book of Revelation. But John says the things of this world and its desires are going to pass away. But genuine believers, we desire to do the will of God. That's our, that's our direction in life. We may not always do it perfectly, but that's our desire. The will of God found in the Word of God And he says, those who do these things, those who live this kind of life, are people who are going to live forever. We live forever because God has given us eternal life. If you think about it, humanity's greatest desire has always been to live forever. And thankfully through Jesus, our God is so good that he's granted us the ultimate desire of our hearts. Now, I told you there's two things I want you to do quickly. The first thing I'd like you to do is this. Believe the gospel and be baptized. Believe the gospel and be baptized. If you've not yet put your faith in Christ, if what I'm talking about today doesn't resonate in your soul, if if there's never been a time when you've committed your life to Christ, I want to encourage you, believe the gospel and be baptized. The gospel is the good news that that God created all things. But unfortunately, sin broke all things. But thankfully, Jesus came to save all things. And not only does he want to save you, he wants to transform you. And one day he wants to restore you in the new heaven and the new earth. John 3.16, for God so loved again the world, that's you, that he gave his only begotten son, That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Commit your life to Christ. Give, stop the struggle. 
Surrender to Jesus. I love the way that C.S. Lewis describes conversion in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Today, if you'll decide to put your faith in Christ, the first step of obedience after following Jesus is to be baptized. Baptism doesn't save you. It doesn't get you into heaven, but it is the first step of obedience. And over and over again in the New Testament, specifically in the book of Acts, the the, the preachers would say, believe and be baptized, repent and be baptized. And so we have a Baptism Sunday coming up. I want to give you the opportunity, if right there in your living room, right there in your kitchen, right there in your family room, or on your bed, in your bedroom, wherever you're listening to this, in your car, in your truck, if you're putting your faith in Jesus right now, if you're making the decision to follow Christ, I want to encourage you to be baptized. Go on our app. Go on our website. It's very easy to find. It's on the homepage of both of those things. And sign up for Baptism Sunday on May 16th. All the details are there. We'll connect you with everything. I would love to see you follow the Lord in believer's baptism. But Christian, one final encouragement for you. If you've already believed the gospel, my encouragement to you is be encouraged. Just simply be encouraged. God wants you to have the assurance of your salvation, and I want you to have the assurance of your salvation. In this book, the book of 1 John, the Spirit of God has made an ironclad case. He's putting the puzzle pieces together about how you can know that you know that you know you are a genuine Jesus follower. And imagine the confidence that will well up in your soul When you can live your life, this life, not just in heaven, but this life, knowing that you're not perfect, you're still on the journey, you're still being transformed, but imagine the confidence you can have knowing you are a genuine Jesus follower. If a sense of gratitude comes over you when you hear about God's forgiveness, like I spoke about earlier, be encouraged. If you long to know God more than anyone else in life, be encouraged. If you have an aching in your soul to see Satan ultimately defeated, be encouraged. If you feel the need to go often to God's word for strength, be encouraged. If you love God more than you love the world, be encouraged. If your own lusts make you nauseous, be encouraged. If you feel the emptiness of worldly possessions and you see the world passing away in front of you, be encouraged. If you've always looked over the horizon for a heavenly country, if you can't wait to see Jesus face to face, be encouraged. You say, Matt, why should I be encouraged? Because children of God desire the things of God. If your faith is in Jesus... When you read the precious words that we just read together, the Spirit of God will bear witness with your spirit that you are the child of God. Children of God desire the things of God. My prayer for you, Christian, is that you will be encouraged. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media. You can also join us in person for services on Thursday at 7 p.m. 
or Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m.